Hello and welcome to another episode of Startups, Sparks and Serendipity. I'm Mike and I'm here with the one and only Max. How are you doing? Hi, Mike. Uh, good to be talking again. Uh, now we see each other also uh, virtually, which we're not going to publish this time, but I think it helps to uh, to spark the characteristics of our conversations a little bit. So I'm doing great. Yeah, things. and also to spark some laughter, right? Uh, absolutely. It's, it's <laughs> nice if you see each other. Yeah, we have a couple of great things we wanted to talk about today. And I think the very first thing, uh, we got a couple of questions from from people that are just starting out with a new idea that want to build a startup or uh, are working at a larger company but have an idea for a product and just asked us how do you actually transform an idea into a product or a company and actually max initiated uh, the, uh, the the conversation and uh, so i'll leave you <laughs> the first part of it so how, how do you think you would start I mean, I think generally, it, of course, it's it can be described in, in complicated and complex words. But I think when it comes down to the core of it all is to understand the problem of the user. Um, and I think to understand the user, you have to understand who the user is first. Um, so there might be two target groups that you might be facing. Um, and I think the core of it all is to understand who does have the product, who is the typical kind of target user, target target buyer, um, and what is the problem of, of it all. I think I just said product, but I meant problem. Um, so I think understanding the problem from the core itself is very important. And I think you can use different methodologies, different methods to, to evaluate what the actual problem is. I think one thing that has been there for quite a long time, which can be a good start, especially for new starters, but I think for generally for everyone is to just create a business model canvas evaluation. I think this is what everybody has learned in some sort of entrepreneurial school, but I, I, it's, I'm not sure if that's the best approach, but I think it generally mm -hmm. helps to understand what are the basic complement, like elements of, of understanding the problem. And um, in addition to kind of creating it, I would talk to friends and, and potential users to just understand what their view on on this potential problem is and if they face the same and there are structured ways of doing it you can do it unstructured but i think having a like a five to ten questionnaire helps to kind of force a certain direction and get a better understanding of what the problem is as yeah. a first step into the into the in, into the question maybe yeah i like that you mentioned the, the the business model canvas because you literally learn about it in almost every single entrepreneurship course Uh, and I think it, it's helpful to structure ideas, but most of the founders that I know actually didn't use it. I agree. Um, they used some adaption of it. And mm -hmm. that's, I think, one of the key to really a lot of things in the startup world. You don't have to use like the exact same thing as some professor or some article tells you. You always have to adapt it. And I think you mm -hmm. said a lot of very interesting things. And most of all, yeah, understanding the problem is crucial. One thing that I would like to add is the problem you're trying to solve and probably also the idea you have, someone else had it before. So what's really crucial in my opinion is to early on research, see who tried it before and then how they failed and why they failed. And mm. I think it's, it's, it would be very arrogant to assume that you had like this idea for the very first time in the world because almost every single idea has been out there. If you're not working at the forefront of science and technology in your very specific field, then someone else tried it. And even if you're working there, probably someone else tried to achieve something similar. You can always learn from them. So that's something I think many people ignore upfront, but could be extremely helpful. 
And then the other thing, talk to users. And how do you get to talk to users? On the one hand, just reach out to them and try to get them on the phone or talk to them in person, but also try to build or simulate your MVP as quickly as possible. And don't wait forever to launch because the longer you wait to launch, the longer you wait to get feedback. And getting feedback is the most important things in the early days of a product or a company. Absolutely. And and maybe to, to even add that, I think when, when looking back at, at different products where, where I participated um, in, in the building process, I think we literally reached out to different persona groups as well to kind of understand who's the actual persona that is most interesting to us. Um, mm. This can be from not just a target group, but from an interest group perspective. So which kind of interests do those certain target groups have and do they differ mm -hmm. in the different groups? And then the define which has been potentially the group with the highest interest um, for, for, for certain things that you can you can approach. I think that's very important um, from, from my perspective. For example, we have we have realized back then that we are looking for people who, who like productivity, who like to understand um, how they can socially interact. Um, when, we, when we build an audio social network, we were trying to kind of understand who would be the kind of people that would switch from an Instagram or Facebook to a potentially audio-focused platform. So we kind of mm. wanted to understand what their basic interest is, um, which which was definitely helpful. And I would add one other point, um, and I'm sure you can relate to this, uh, Mike, to kind of understand what's the riskiest assumption that you have when building a product. Mm. So maybe to, to take that even as a first or second step to understand the assumption that you have, you need to evaluate if this is a risky assumption and you need to test it before you move on because there might be certain assumptions. Let's say you want to do something in AR and you realize that all your customers don't want to use an, an iPhone for AR, then you need to find other alternatives when, when the assumption is that your technology is going to be built on an iPhone and, and it's going to be connected to AR. Uh, so I think this is something that, that, that I've learned personally. Yeah, like having assumptions or hypotheses is super important and it, it doesn't stop, right? The bigger your company gets, the, the more important the assumptions get, like to, to some degree at least. But you, you just always have to, that's, that's a very good point. And we do that a lot at, uh, at my current startup, write down what the actual hypotheses are that you have to prove mm -hmm. or disprove and then figure out how to do that as quickly as possible. And that's usually through learning a lot and through getting user feedback, either by talking to them, but then also at some point by letting them vote with their wallet or their activity. Um, maybe let's let's try to get a like very concrete example of how we could actually start. Let's assume you and I would build a new startup together. Mm -hmm. Okay. So mm -hmm. do you have a, a preferred industry that you want to build a company in with me? Um, I think with you, I would probably build something together in, in sports um, or let's say mental mm -hmm. health could be something I think where we both are interested in. So maybe let's, mm -hmm. let's cover an idea there. Okay. Mental health. Um, so what would be the first step? My, my suggestion is one, just figure out a bit more about the industry. And by industry, I don't necessarily only mean the companies that are having actual businesses there. But if I say industry, I usually mean the whole stakeholder system. So who is actually someone in the mental health system that could be someone who is experiencing symptoms, that could be someone who runs an NGO who helps people, that could be the government. So really mapping out who the relevant players are and then trying to understand how all of that works together. And by the way, like the way how we describe it right now, it's, it's a fairly analytical way 
of promoting an idea from Mm. just being an idea to being a product or a company yep. a lot of startups actually stumbled into it right but what we're talking about right now is just a more analytical approach so just keep that in mind when we talk about it okay Absolutely. let's assume we have mapped out the important mental health players we have the idea we want to um, let's say resources to people with um, mediocre no mediocre is not the right term with medium or small symptoms so so not uh, as intense symptoms so no one who's like clinically depressed but just maybe a stage before that mm -hmm. how would you how would you proceed i think i think you mentioned a good point you can before even go doing that i think you need to decide whether you want to go i think ray dalio from bridgewater uh described it quite mm -hmm. nicely either go for a top-down analysis so understanding all the stakeholder relations or going bottom up which is understanding maybe a clinically depressed person uh, and you can do both ways mm -hmm. to start off um let's say when we start off with we have a top-down kind of analysis we do the stakeholder analysis and now we want to go bottom up and we want to find a medically depressed person i would literally talk to two people i would talk to the person that treats them to understand what are the current challenges that people have when treating depressed people what's what are the issues why do they come to them what's their initial reaction of people coming to a doctor to get an to get an analysis to get an overview of why they might be sick and the other mm -hmm. person would of course be the patient itself or him or herself understand what what's the actual deeper problem why they want to go to the doctor and not from a medical perspective of course but from a perspective of help what are they looking for what's the end result of why do they want to go to a doctor what what do they prefer as an end solution mm. that was great that you um just explicitly stated it because i didn't <laughs> so that's very helpful <laughs> and then i i totally i totally see the point and let's then assume we've we've talked to many of these people and what we want to do is get them before they become clinically depressed, right? Uh, for some people, probably the progression from minor depression to like a really strong depression c can't really be stopped. But let's uh, make the assumption that some of the people who have mild depression or mild depression, their trajectory towards experiencing worse depression and like really severe depression can be stopped. Let, let's say that this is the assumption of the business we want to build, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what would the next step be? I think we would have to find some kind of MVP we would like to build to actually test that and then also define the assumptions that you just said, right? Assumption number one would just be we can actually help people to basically create some kind of barrier for them that they don't progress to the worst stages. That, that would be assumption number one. And then maybe assumption number two is that we can do that through, like I'm, I'm really <laughs> brainstorming here right now because we haven't thought it through, but let's assume we can make it through an app that connects someone to maybe a therapist that are still in training. So since, since you're not like super clinically severe depressed, maybe uh, it's good if we use the scarce resource of therapists without licenses that can help people to basically turn their life around, do some practices that get them out of it and mm -hmm. help them to not progress in terms of the diagnosis. So let's assume they, they can help them to not um, have a, a worse time with their depression. Mm -hmm. um, what would the next step be? How, like, how would you actually test it? What, what would be your your way of doing that i think to to go on a like to to make it very manually effective i would literally as as an mvp if i'm not able to build any product yet i would probably bring those people together 
so have have maybe if they are students and they're about to be finalized with their medical studies, I would bring them together with the patients mm -hmm. and would give them potentially maybe a, a handover of things I would do within the app. Let's say it's an app and I would you mm -hmm. have different steps, different kind of onboarding steps that would help us as 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 the product builders to understand what is the actual need or how do we how do we better identify what the the patient needs maybe mm -hmm. through like an onboarding process and I would display this onboarding process manually in a one-to-one -one conversation to un to to bring the process into a more analog form and then I would start the conversations of of the basic hypothesis that we have where we think the students or the 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 yeah the the students the beginners would have a certain set of guidelines that they would need to go through to to give us a feeling of or an evaluation whether the patient has been successful um, or has been satisfied with with the conversation or not. I think this would be a first step into the market to actually analyze does this help people or not? Is this complete mm. uh, complete bullshit? Yeah, yeah, I like the idea. And then all, probably we need some kind of testing group, our own people, and need to compare it to either if we can do it like some random control group, but that would probably be different. So just the overall averages of how many people are actually progressing from the mild case to the more severe case. And then if we can have a statistically significant result that says that we have a better way and that we can actually help people to not uh, progress in that direction. Obviously, there are mm -hmm. a couple of other assumptions in there and we are simplifying, but that would be a great start because if we have that, then we would definitely know that there is something that we should commit resources into. And I think that's basically what I wanted to show when I just uh, suggested it, that really the, the start of building a company and a startup is often very manual. So I actually like that you suggested to make it very easy, don't build too much fancy tech up front. It depends on the product you're building, obviously, but mm -hmm. often you can simulate it. You can basically take the core pieces of what you're trying to build and try to deliver the value to your users by only delivering these core pieces. Um, actually, to address maybe one more point before before we maybe jump into the other topic is there was one guy in, in my previous, previous podcast, Jerry Haag, which was the former managing director of Amazon. He kind of built the marketplace in Europe uh, and mm -hmm. worked very closely together with Bezos back then to, to see what the market is in Europe for marketplaces. Mm. Um, and he said to me back then, and I will never forget it, think about the stuff that will not change when building mm -hmm. a product. Mm -hmm. People will always buy when he built the marketplace. People like to buy stuff. That's it. That's that's a fact. Yeah. The question is, are they going to do it anal like in a shop, in, in an analog world, or are they going to do it in a digital world? And this was his hypothesis that people will be in the future. They will actually want to buy stuff online. And I think the same question applies to the, the, the kind of product go through that we just had, right? I mean, people want to get treated. That's not going to change. Whether that's going to be in an analog way or in a digital way, but people want to get better. They want to feel better. And the methodology of how you want to feel better can be different to several people. And the hypothesis would just be, will people be able to have maybe faster access to, to doctors because they use beginners or they be use, use students that are in the final phase? They have faster access, but they might not be on the professional level like a, an experience doctor with 15 years of experience are they mm -hmm. actually going to be interested in kind of moving into that direction of of having faster access but maybe less experienced people and that's just a question where you think hey the actual treatment is not going to change it's just a methodology and i think this has helped kind of me to understand when facing certain challenges and certain certain issues whether that's going to be in companies or when when actually transforming 
new ideas into into product and companies. Yeah, I like that mental model. It's actually one of the things that we looked at closely as well when we when we built Blair. Because one of the things that we heard from some people that we spoke to is, will universities even exist in 10 years, mm. right? Because Lambda School was going crazy at the time and more, more things were going online. And our assumption is, yes, on the one hand, universities will still exist in 10 years. They might look mm. a bit different, but they will still be there. But then the other assumption on a higher level that we had is students or young people or people in general will always want to access education. And they always want more choices in terms of how to finance that education. Because if you have more choices, that means you can use the product you really want to use. So these are the two things that we thought wouldn't change. And we have a couple of others, but yeah, I like that you brought that point up. Uh, it's, a, it's a really important one. Great. Um, appreciate it. Thanks also for sharing your story about it. Maybe as, as a summarizing word, I think we have to start with the problem. We have to go through the the initial patient journey potentially to understand mm -hmm. what what is mm -hmm. the user what 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 is the, the what is what's the, the customer or the user journey and then potentially also start showcasing first mvps whether that's through a, like a manual story or um, through like a potential mvp that you built on sketch or any other design tool that you can present to certain people just to get some feedback so i think this would be like the two three steps to potentially move forward one to two steps is that correct yeah i think even more than like having a design in Figma is just build a website, just build a website, super easy, have a sign up flow, let both sites sign up and then do everything in the back end manually until you've built it. Mm -hmm. I think that's how I see a lot of startups start, even from highly technical people, right? Because I know a lot of people who can build crazy products even in a couple of weeks, but it doesn't really make too much sense for them to commit to building something where they don't even know if someone would even use it. Yeah. So... That's the thing James Currier from NFX, uh, which is a VC that's focused on network effects. He, what, what he likes to say is basically the first thing you have to do, and I'm paraphrasing, I'm not quoting directly. First thing you have to do is figure out whether someone actually wants to use it. And before you do that, don't invest too many resources. Try, try to find the, the easiest way of figuring that out. I mm -hmm. think that's, that's a, good, uh, a good summary. Absolutely. Great. Um, so maybe this has helped and we would love to understand, of course, maybe the listeners views if they have, if they have gone, gone through different processes that maybe we don't have on our minds. I mean, we're not, uh, 50 year, um, long experts in this, but I think we have done a couple of, of changes and, and different movements within, within this idea of, of transforming an idea into a product. And maybe to, to cover that, I mean, if I think the storyline is generally, we want to cover one other topic, which is around like the innovator's dilemma and, and. Mm -hmm disruption in certain markets which of course fits quite well as soon as you build an idea and it becomes a product and a big company you're going to face sooner or later the the dilemma of potential innovators coming into your market and disrupting a market and and especially big corporations have this all the time um so i think mike maybe you can start off by by giving mm -hmm. your general overview of, of the topic yeah well, one thing that i wanted to add still to the topic we discussed earlier is one thing that is also a very good way of bringing an idea to a product or company is if you're just so passionate about it that you mm. just can't sleep yeah. when, you, when you don't work on it. If you really have something, and I, I think there are some very enviable, in, in quotation marks, people that I know that are just so passionate about this one thing and have been for such a long time that they, they just can't help but really want to solve that problem. And I think this, is, uh, this can be extremely powerful. And then it doesn't really matter that much, <laughs> like mm -hmm. how 
how many people believe in you upfront. And obviously you have to think about hypotheses and still do the steps, but usually you know the market upfront. So if you have this passion for something, then trying to figure out how you can scale that is, is also a feasible approach, in my opinion. I agree. Absolutely. Yeah. But uh, yeah, Innovator's Dilemma uh, is the book uh, I wanted to suggest for today, written by Clayton Christensen, one of my absolute favorites in the academic world. He, he sadly died last year. Um, way too young, in my opinion. And he he worked as, I think it was a management consultant um, for, for some time before he become a, became a professor at, at Harvard Business School. And he and his term, he coined the term disruption that you hear so many times from so many people. Mm. So basically, he laid the groundwork for one of the theoretical foundations of modern technology, and he, he helped me to expand my view on tech when I initially started out in the industry. So disruption has actually been inflated so much over the past years. And Christensen was actually a bit pissed about it. <laughs> so he, he always said that not everything new is a disruption and that it's very important to understand what disruption actually means to understand what follows from it. So what I thought would be helpful is if we just give you a quick overview right now, talk a bit about it, and then you can read the rest in his, in my opinion, still really great book called The Innovator's Dilemma. Please. So, like I said... I'm, I'm, I'm in full learning mode now, so be ready. <laughs> okay, I, I'm, I'm totally ready. <laughs> disruption is not every new innovation in the market. And so many startups say, yeah, we're disrupting this market, we're disrupting that market. But even if you're doing something new, that doesn't necessarily mean disruption in the sense that he meant it. So it's very specific. It refers to existing providers um, that basically want to go after the most demanding and highest paying customers. So what they are doing is improving their product on a specific value scale. And this value scale is different for every single market, right? His example was always um, related to computers and uh, mainframe computers and then personal computers. Um, let's, so let's, computing, let's use computing power as the access where you can improve your product. Mm -hmm. So what the existing players will do is they will improve the capabilities in terms of computing power over and over and over again and make sure that it uh, confirms to the standards of the highest paying customers because that's who they wanted to go after, right? Mm -hmm. And what disruption means is that a new market entrant, usually a new market entrant, focuses on the overlooked segments in the market and competes on other vectors first. And often they are also cheaper. So what, what does it actually mean? Let's assume you have laptops, right? And laptops get better and better and better. And the prominent laptop companies just have po more powerful and more powerful laptops, right? But then at some point, <laughs> someone at Apple comes along and brings out a smartphone. And a smartphone can actually not compete with a laptop in terms of computing power, right? Mm -hmm. But the thing is that smartphones on the axis of computing power become more and more powerful every single year. And at some point, the number of people in the market where the computing power of smartphones is high enough exceeds a certain number of people so that it can, can become mainstream. Mm. So at some point, smartphones are actually a good product that you want to have to access the internet, 
right? Mm -hmm. And many people have smartphones and laptops. So basically, smartphones kind of disrupted laptops in the way that smartphones are now the primary means of access to the internet. And they are not better at laptops in terms of raw computing power, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Laptops are still way, way better and way stronger. However, they are good enough and fast enough for most of the users. Most of the users don't need the newest super hardcore 3D rendering laptop mm -hmm. when they want to access the internet, mm -hmm. right? So that was a very long-form discussion of saying that basically what disruptors are doing is starting at the bottom of the market at a specific value scale and then improving this over time. And then at some point, their value is good enough for the mainstream. So the actual incumbent that has the way better product is too expensive mm -hmm. because people don't need it anymore so that's a very good like very good example smartphones and laptops there are many others but let's then assume there are other things um, there's a completely new technology mm -hmm. um, that is doing things differently and that does not necessarily mean that it's disruptive disruptive is actually coming from the bottom of the market expanding in terms of value expanding in terms of market and then at some point capturing a large enough portion of the market at a lower price point, mostly. That's that's basically the description. Did that make sense? Absolutely. And I think this is great because when you when you look at it from from an objective standpoint, I think when when new players enter the market, it seems like they have observed the market for a while and they have kind of. Hmm. I mean, to analyze the vectors that you want to go into that you mentioned earlier, you have to know the market and you have to know the customer demand. And my, my follow-up question may be, more, Mike, you can answer it. I'm not sure. The follow-up question is like, when the consumer, I mean, like maybe ask differently, does the cons consumer need to be ready for a disruption or ca can the disruption make the consumer ready? Uh, can you elaborate on what you specifically mean by that question? I mean, generally, like look at look at the iPhone, right? I mean... Mm -hmm. Often it said that not like it wasn't something that the consumers wished for. It was more mm -hmm. something mm -hmm. where the disruptor, which was Apple back then, they found the demand within the consumer side. I mean, the and the mm -hmm. question is, do you think that's always or mostly the case with disruptors, or can it also be vice versa, where where the the end user actually demands something that maybe the the current company is not able to to deliver, and then a disruptor comes along and solves the uh, the the consumer the consumer demand? Yeah, I think it can actually be both. However, in terms of really disruptive products. It often is the case that people at the bottom of the market don't necessarily ask for this product because they don't know that this could exist, mm. right? They know that it, like that a product that exists is out there, and but it's way too powerful and usually too expensive for mm -hmm. them. So what they think is maybe, hey, I want a cheaper laptop, for example, to stick to the example. Mm -hmm. But usually most of them don't think about, hey, why, why not a smartphone, right? Mm -hmm. So they think about their problem and they think about the value that they would need to get out of it to get like to put some money into it. But on the other hand, they usually don't request it. At least that's my understanding. Mm -hmm. But it, it's a bit context dependent, I think. Of course. And actually, like Christensen has a lot of great cases on the topic uh, in Harvard Business Review and other places. So once you start reading uh, a bit more, uh, all of it makes a bit more sense. Mm -hmm. But basically what I wanted to, to just do today is say, Disruption is not everything that's new. Disruption is a very specific term. There are many ways of becoming a market leader as a startup. Disruption is not the only way. But the, the cool thing about disruption is that incumbents for a long time couldn't really do much about it. Because if you go quarter by quarter and want to make more revenue, you will 
basically try to improve your product and go after the highest paying customers because in the short term, that's the best thing you can possibly mm -hmm. do. And it's always the rational thing to do, which is a problem for you, right? Because if the rational thing, that's what Christensen said, if the rational thing for you to do is the thing that leads to your failure in a couple of years, that's a really big problem. Mm. So he also wrote a book afterwards, which is The Innovator Solution, where he tried to <laughs> focus a bit more on what you can do against it and uh, how, how to protect, et cetera, et cetera. And I think like one of the conclusions is the best thing you can do is just uh, spin up a new business unit that's separate from your main business unit that can work on their own balance sheet that has their own profit and loss statement because for them then it is profitable to target the lower part of the mm -hmm. market right because for large corporations and departments that have been working on five ten million dollar deals like in, in the industry for mm -hmm. example they don't want to work on like 5k 10k deals just because it doesn't really move the needle that much But if you have it in a separate business unit, that was one of the things that, that, that he suggested, that this business unit can get the 5K deals, can get the 10K deals. And then over time, maybe this business unit becomes the predominant business unit over time. But yeah, I don't want to take too much away from the books, uh, especially Innovator's Dilemma is, in my opinion, a must must read in the startup world. It's really good. It's one of the classics. So I wanted to talk about it. Today. Great. I love it. Um, maybe just, just one thought that I want to add, which also comes from a book recommendation, more mm -hmm. or less, is from Zero to One, Peter Thiel, um, mm. which which for me is definitely a classic in, in, in building startups and understanding startups mm. from, from his experience, of course, being one of the founders of PayPal and, and different other great investments. I think one thing that is directly linked to what you just said, which, which I think is interesting, is when you come into a market, of course, there's going to be competition, whether that's going to be through corporations or through smaller competitors that are maybe a little bigger than you are. I think what he mentioned back then is that competition is complex, but competition is also something where you need to find the intersection of different modules. Let's put it that way. I'm not like I'm also paraphrasing. I'm not sure how he called it, but let's say you want to open up a restaurant in, in Silicon Valley you need to define, is that going to be a British restaurant? Is that an Asian restaurant? Is that a German restaurant? You need to define which kind of type of restaurant is it? That would be the first step. Then you say, okay, the location is going to be Palo Alto in, 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 in San Francisco. And the third step would be, would be that you want to open up a restaurant. So the, the, the three connection would be British food or German food, Palo Alto is the location, and the restaurant is the more type of, of thing you want to do. And combining all those three elements would give you a potential success within the market that you are facing instead of just saying, I want to open up a restaurant in Palo Alto and I'm not even sure which kind of food I'm making. So by actually analyzing your competition, you need to find out what are the potential three elements that define the, the status quo of the market within Palo Alto and what, what is the potential gap that I can fill with my idea. And, and looking at the competition makes totally sense for me. And I think that's um, also how you can disrupt the market by just looking at the different vectors, how you called it, to analyze what is the the needle that you can move in order to have the biggest impact. Is that understandable or yeah. was that too complicated? No, no, no. It, it was understandable, at least to me, but I've also read the book okay. a couple of times. <laughs> so uh, actually, when I think of zero to one, first thing that comes to my head is build a monopoly. Don't do anything yep. else. That's true. Fuck competition. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's also a great book. I think like it's one like if I had to talk about like five, six, seven, like something that um, ballpark standard books, or books I would recommend people to read to understand startups a bit better. Zero to One is definitely among them, and then Innovator Stellar as well. I actually read them both uh, a couple of times, and yeah. Peter Thiel is a, a really great thinker Absolutely. in that regard. Mike, I, I know we have, we always have maybe one sort of productivity tip to share. Anything on your side that you have in mm -hmm. mind currently? Yes, yes, definitely. So one thing that I talked 
about yesterday with a friend of mine who asked me for productivity advice, especially in unstructured times right now where uh, his internship was canceled. So he's, he's currently finishing his, his master's or MBA, I don't know. <laughs> um, um, it, it's some weird name for the program, so I don't know what the like, specific degree is, but some kind of higher education degree. <laughs> <laughs> and um, he basically wanted to close it off with an internship in the summer, and the internship got canceled, so he has a lot more time now. And he was asking for how you can actually keep up your habits, how you can actually keep up productivity, especially in unstructured environments. And one of the things that's most important to me, and that was most important to me when I had unstructured time and tried to be productive, uh, productive is uh, the concept of rebounding. And uh, I don't know, probably there's a like, technical term out there, uh, but that's the term I've, I've used myself. Um, basically, often when you want to be productive, you have some kind of habits you want to do every day, or every week, and at some point you fail. You, you will never be able to do everything every single day. Life is just in the way, you're unmotivated, maybe you get sick or whatever. And my most important learning for this specific thing is that the day after you fail to have it is the most important day to actually keep it up. Because on this day, it really, really matters that you start it again. Because if you have two days in a row, then usually you will see a lot of days in a row, at least that's my experience. But if you come back and get back up as soon as possible, that usually helps. And I see that in my own tracking. So I have a habit tracker. And if I um, did a habit at a day, uh, then it's green. If I didn't do it, it's red. And then sometimes uh, for travel days, for example, there's a gray thing if mm -hmm. I just skip it. But let's assume that we have a green and red. And I always see multiple reds. I, I never have two, like almost never have two days of reds or like three days of reds. It's either like seven days of red mm -hmm. or it's just green. And so what, one thing I notice is just rebound, try to get back into it and really focus on the day after you failed. That's if you do that, or at least in my experience, that really helps you to keep it long. -term. I couldn't agree more. Uh, I think I, I love the term rebounding uh, combined to your passion for sports. Once again, Mike. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think it it, it it fits quite well to um, to what the how what the the habit is all about. And I, and I would add potentially one more thing. It's also linked to this directly. I think Jocko Willink, um, which is a former Navy SEAL guy, he. <laughs> which I think a lot of you guys have heard probably before. He mentioned that when you have a habit and you feel like you can't do it today because of just maybe laziness reasons or because you don't feel as well as yesterday, do it exactly one more time because probably the day after you're going to be very happy that you actually kept doing it um, just because you were maybe a little lazy or it didn't feel as as good as the day before just by continuing especially on this day you will feel way better the next day because you know that you have overcome a certain situation where you didn't feel as prepared maybe as you wanted to be for this habit but when you do it you're going to feel better the next day and you're going to start continuing it and I've, I've, I've done it several times and I was very impressed of the effect of it and I think it's directly linked to what you just said um, I don't know what the the word for it can be but rebounding and maybe also a certain continuation would be a good combination of both yeah the, the days we have to crawl to the gym yeah. to actually work out are the best workouts in, in, in some right. sense so yeah that makes sense and maybe maybe to add to that what I usually do when I have these days where I think fuck I'm so exhausted or I, I don't really want to do this right now 
I always try to have an initiation, so a small starter. I say, okay, maybe maybe I don't meditate for like 15 minutes today, mm -hmm. but let's do it for five. Or maybe I'm, I'm not writing the whole article today, but let, let's yeah. write for 10 minutes. And then usually once you've actually started, then everything feels fine again. And then usually you can yeah. expand it a bit. So yeah, doing it on the days where you feel bad and just forcing yourself to actually start and go through with it is super, Agreed. super Agreed. helpful. Would be great to understand it from a neuroscience perspective, maybe why the brain is wired like that as soon as you start something for 10 minutes why you get back to the action. Yeah, I think it has to do with flow, mm -hmm. probably to some degree, right? Because once you're in, in the zone, most mm -hmm. things don't hurt. Even the things that you, you probably know the calls that you don't want to have because, I don't know, like, like me, right? to someone. Like <laughs> yeah, so basically adding all those things together, I think is helpful, especially in unstructured times. Really, like right now you have a lot of time, try to use it. I actually published a blog article about that a couple of days ago. Uh, that was fairly well received. Just use that time. At some point, you will regret it if you if you didn't. Okay, that's two euros for our uh, for our bank. You promoted your own content. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> yeah, but w what do you think I'm doing here? It's it's all about my myself becoming a super famous author. Um, no, literally, I just write to structure my own thoughts mostly. He does um, it greatly. I, and yeah. I I give you some compliments tonight. Okay, That's thank fine. you. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, so I think that was everything we wanted to talk about today. I mean, we have a couple of other topics, but we are over time as always, and we could talk for hours and hours. True Do words. you have anything to uh, to add to the episode that's super urgent? <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Then uh, what, what we've decided is that we want to close off episodes with great quotes, just to give you something to think about. And I've prepared the first one, and I'll just uh, tell you the quote. And then the episode's finished. So, Max, it was a pleasure as always. And I'm looking forward to the next episode. Likewise. Go ahead. The, the so, stage is yours. Thank you. The quote is from Robert A. Heinlein. And what he said is, everything is theoretically impossible until it is done. One could write a history of science in reverse by assembling the solemn pronouncements of highest authority about what could not be done and could never happen.